I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, the complex systems that make our world hum can be wrecked by small mistakes. But is that fixable? You know, the antidote to complexity, it's not simplicity, it's transparency. Plus, there's a difference between pleasure and happiness, and corporations know it. We have been sacrificing our happiness for the pursuit of pleasure, because pleasure got cheap. Then what's the cost of not having access to the internet? So there's a lot of loss associated with not having the amount of broadband in your home that you really need to be participating successfully today. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In March of 1979, there was a minor plumbing problem near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. A valve was supposed to shut, but it didn't. The plumbing problem, as you might guess, turned out to have major consequences, which is why we remember it today. The open valve was in a huge building on the Susquehanna River, a nuclear power plant called Three Mile Island. And a partial meltdown, including release of radioactive gas, was underway. The White House called an emergency meeting. As the new book Meltdown explains, President Jimmy Carter's science aide suggested to the head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that maybe terminal cancer patients could be sent in to release the valve. The head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission looked at the White House aide, and according to the book, he could tell he wasn't joking. Meltdowns, though, don't just happen in nuclear reactors. They happen in financial markets, in airplanes, in companies. We live in a world of complicated systems where most of us understand a sliver of what's going on on the back end. And all those moving parts mean that something as simple as a valve not closing can lead to a nuclear meltdown, which has made big catastrophes harder to prevent. Chris Clearfield is a co-author of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. He's also the founder of System Logic and a former derivatives trader. Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So what was the first thing that got you interested in this idea of systems just completely breaking apart and, and failing? That's a great question. I think it really was um, just looking at the world and seeing what was going on and seeing all of these big failures that we had out there and kind of looking into them a little bit and realizing that there was a lot more in common with them than than seemed on the surface. Mm. You know, I was a trader during the financial crisis. And so I kind of had a front row seat to organizations that handled that relatively well and organizations that really fell apart um, during that crisis. And, you know, for for me, it was really interesting to sort of try and understand or, or try and think about why did some organizations handle this well and and others really struggle mm-hmm. with it? And then just a couple years later, the, the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil spill yep. happened. And for me, that was kind of looking into that accident, realizing it, it actually had a lot in common with the financial crisis. And and that was pretty unexpected. And so that's kind of part of what piqued my interest in the topic. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to uh, Three Mile Island for a minute. 
How could something like a valve, so something so seemingly inconsequential, it was a small bit of plumbing, it was related to some plumbing maintenance that had been done, how could something like that partially melt down a nuclear reactor, which when you think about safety systems, boy, the number one goal of a nuclear power right. plant is <laughs> not, to melt, not to melt down, right? So how did that happen? It's really interesting. And our insight in that accident really comes from a, a researcher called Charles Perot, um, who goes by Chick, Chick Perot. And Chick Perot was a sociologist who looked at the Three Mile Island accident after it happened. And, you know, the official conclusion of the accident investigation was that the it was operator error, that the operators had made a mistake, that they hadn't responded to the the accident correctly. And it was their fault that the meltdown happened. But what Perot saw when he looked at it was he really saw this accident where you couldn't even understand the logic of it until you had a bunch of engineers doing nine months worth of investigation. Um, And so what he said was basically, you know, it's a cheap shot to blame these operators. There's no way they could have responded correctly because there's no way they could have understood what was going on. You know, not only did you have that valve that was stuck open in the wrong position, um, you had other valves that were closed that were supposed to be open. No one really knows Mm. why to this day. Even the uh, initial trigger of the accident, which was some pumps shutting off, really still nobody really understands why that happened. And so what Perot looked at when he looked at this accident was he saw, you know, this major nuclear meltdown that wasn't caused by a big external shock. Uh, It wasn't caused by a terrorist attack or an earthquake, but it was caused by all of these small, small failures that came together. And for him, that was really uh, terrifying in a way because it, it meant that you know, this incredibly complex system, it really was beyond our understanding and, and in many ways beyond our control. Um, I want to take a bit of an excursion here to a meltdown that fortunately did not have health consequences or, you know, ruin anybody's lives or anything. It was at the 2017 Oscars and Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, they come out to present the award for Best Picture. And the Academy Award... For best picture. You're awful. <laughs> Come on. La La Land. Yeah! Uh, Chris Clearfield, that was obviously a mistake. Uh, there was a bit of a meltdown in a system. And the system may not be, again, like the most important system in the world, but their highest priority, you would think, would be to give the awards to the right people. It's an award show. Right. Um, how did that happen? Like all of these meltdowns, there were a bunch of factors that led to it. There's one that really stands out, though, which is, I mean, you you can listen to Warren Beatty's voice, right? And you just, you hear his hesitation, and you right. hear you hear him really struggling. And I think, you know, Faye Dunaway kind of thinks he's hamming it up, but he's, he's not. He's looking at this card. He's realized it's the wrong thing. But by the time right. he's realized it, it's too late, right? He's already on stage. He doesn't really know what to right. do. And, right. and so you look at the design of the envelopes that they had in 2017, and they were these, you know, envelopes with these like sleek gold lettering, very beautiful, very subtle, kind of beautiful, elegant design. And what happened is backstage, Warren Beatty was handed the wrong envelope, but he didn't realize it until he had it open and he was actually looking at the card. And so one of the problems here is that there were these things that went wrong, but then it was very hard to catch the error because there wasn't a lot of transparency right. in the system. Right, right, right. And if you compare that to the envelopes this year, um, how to put it delicately, they're really ugly. 
Um, <laughs> right? I mean, they... Well, I mean, the whole, the viewing audience, which is really what the Oscars is for, yeah. I, don't, I doubt appreciates the sleek and subtle lettering. Exactly. Uh, you know, of last year, whereas, as, as you you know, point out, subtle lettering can lead to problems. Yeah, exactly. So this year, it says best picture. You know, the category name is in huge letters. It's actually on the envelope right. twice. Uh, so it's pretty hard to imagine a mix-up not getting caught because it's so clear. And this is really this bigger lesson, which is, you know, the antidote to complexity, it's not simplicity, mm. it's transparency. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Chris Clearfield, co-author of the book Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. So you say that one way of averting disasters often is to listen to people who speak up, who dissent. Um, It could be an outsider who says, like, I don't quite understand why you're doing things this way. Um, It could be a whistleblower, because sometimes you've got people who sort of see the seeds of a problem before the problem blows up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most powerful solutions uh, in the book. And I think it's one of the things, you know, if you think about what what the kind of thesis is, right, it's that these small errors snowball into these big problems. And so, well, what we need to do then is we need to start to get a handle on these small errors before that happens. And, you know, there's loads of examples. I mean, aviation as an industry has done a really amazing job of kind of getting a handle on this and encouraging flight crews to to report these small problems before, you know, these near misses before they become big ones. But, you know, there's also there's a really powerful story in the book about um, a nurse who is working in a hospital and she has two patients with similar last names in the same room. And they're actually taking medications that have similar sounding names, too. And she almost gives the wrong medication to the wrong patient and she catches herself And what she does is she doesn't just catch the problem for herself. She tells her fellow nurses about it. And then they actually separate the patients into two separate rooms. So, you know, the nurse on the next shift is not likely to make that same problem. Mm -hmm. And then the hospital goes ahead and and takes it a step further and actually implements a policy where patients with similar last names aren't going to be put in the same rooms anymore. And so I think what you see from this story is you see the power of – Um, It's almost, you know, it's the power of small data, right? It's the power of one person's experience with this near disaster, and then the organization learns from it. Mm -hmm. And what we need to be doing is training and teaching those who are in power to listen and to really give them the tools to be able to do that, too, because it's not easy. Right. Um, Another point that you make about how to avoid disaster, and this kind of speaks to that, that notion of listening, is that the more diverse your team is the better chance you say they will actually have at like spotting potential problems at at kind of um, avoiding the landmines down the road. Yeah, this was one of the most surprising pieces of research that we came across. Diversity actually helps teams avoid meltdowns. And and that was kind of surprising. And when we talk about diversity, we're, we're thinking both about you know, surface level diversity, race and and gender, Mm -hmm. things like that. But we're also thinking about diversity in professional backgrounds, diversity in expertise. Mm -hmm. And so what the research shows across a bunch of different domains is that diversity works not because it brings together a bunch of different perspectives in this sort of happy kumbaya moment, but it works because it makes things harder. So it, it creates kind of a speed bump in a diverse group we're less willing to give other people the benefit of the doubt. And that applies whether we're, you know, making decisions in a financial context, um, whether we're making Mm. decisions about 
um, who to hire, that kind of thing. And it also applies when we're thinking about how diverse teams make decisions about big, complex, thorny business problems. So Mm -hmm. um, one of the most interesting pieces of research in the book is this research that shows that community banks that had more bankers on their board were more likely to fail during the financial crisis. And Interesting. That's kind of surprising, right? I mean, you would think that bankers would be pretty good at managing banks. Right, right, right. It, it is kind of, but I also can see that somebody from outside a system would be like, this does not make any sense to me. Why do you do things this way? Exactly. And you might have to actually think about why you do things this way. That's exactly it. And really what it did was it just enabled that questioning to happen. So a board that had not just bankers, but also doctors and lawyers and nonprofit mm-hmm. folks and people of different professional backgrounds, they would just be willing to say, hey, this doesn't make sense to me and and just kind mm-hmm. of challenge, not even necessarily challenge the decisions, but just challenge the the cadence of decision making, right? So they wouldn't just kind of go along to get along. They were really willing to say, I don't understand this. Can you explain this more and defer making a decision until there was more to understand? If you were giving advice to to companies, to organizations, what would you say that the two or three things should be that somebody should really focus on if they want to prevent a meltdown? I'll give two of, I think, my favorites. And actually, both of them apply to uh, both companies as well as people, as well as people just making big decisions about their lives. Right. One thing you can do is just to incorporate outsiders, you know, just bring in somebody who's not connected with the decision but has enough of an idea about um, the context that the decision is being made but, you know, isn't bound up in any of the particular outcomes and get them to weigh in on it. And that's something that companies can do, you know, we can all do. That's a really a really powerful tool because it just shakes up our thinking a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um You know, another one is, uh, and we talked a little bit about this, but just realize that in complex systems, we're not going to have all the answers. And so what we need to do is we need to try things. We need to try something, see how it works, and then reflect on that and kind of suggest something new to try. And this is something we Mm -hmm. see um, folks like film crews and and emergency room teams doing. Um, But it's also... You know, as I was writing the book and was kind of enmeshed in this research, um, looking at in particular how organizations kind of manage these crisis situations that they don't always understand, I started to realize that my morning routine with with our five year old, getting him ready for preschool, that actually looked a lot like a crisis, um, <laughs> right? And there were meltdowns, right? Exactly, exactly. And so I've seen it myself. <laughs> many of us have. Um, And so what we started to do is we started to have this kind of short, you know, five minute meeting every week, just reflecting on asking three questions. What went well? What didn't go well? And what do we want to try next week? And, you know, it's really simple. But what it means is that we're not solving the same problems over and over again in the moment. But instead, we're figuring out, okay, you know, we we can't spend time in the morning finding jackets and shoes and gloves. So we're going to find, get a bin and put them downstairs in the, you know, in the garage before we go out. Um, we're going to make sure that the lunchbox is always put in the same place and stuff like that. And so, you know, the truth is we never know what solutions are going to work, but we come up with stuff to try and then we see if that works or doesn't and, and move, move on from there. And I think that kind of experimentation is something that uh, is hard for places to do, but really is, um, essential to getting a better handle on how 
to avoid the kind of meltdowns that we see more and more often. Chris Clearfield is a co-author of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. On our Facebook page, we've got an article for you by Chris Clearfield about preparing for a crisis that you could never predict. That's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. And on our website, if you want an innovation hub mug or a t-shirt or a bunch of other things, we've now got them for you, which is pretty exciting for those of us who work on the show. So head to innovationhub.org, and if you look on the right side of the webpage, you will see a link where you can check out our new swag. Doctors and researchers have known for decades that Americans have a weight problem. Many experts believe the turning point was in the mid-1980s. And once we started becoming heavier, we didn't stop. New data out just this year shows that nothing, not gym memberships or salad bars or any number of diets, has turned the tide. Now more than 70 percent of Americans are overweight, including nearly 40 percent who are obese. One man who's not the least bit surprised about this is Robert Lustig, who spent decades as a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of California at San Francisco, but who rose to fame a few years ago talking about our addiction to sugar. Of the 600,000 items in the American food supply, 80% are spiked with added sugar, specifically for the food industry's purposes, because they know when they add it, you buy more. In the last few years, Lustig has become worried that the problem goes way beyond sugar and beyond obesity. He argues that both American corporations and often consumers have conflated two words. And doing that has made us less healthy. Those two terms, pleasure and happiness. The difference between those two words might seem inconsequential, but Lustig says it isn't. Pleasure is the feeling of, this feels good, I want more. Happiness or contentment is the emotion of, this feels good, I don't want or need anymore. They're not the same. Happiness lasts. Pleasure is fleeting. Happiness is about sharing and giving. Pleasure is generally about taking or consuming. Happiness is not addictive. Pleasure is. Lustig has seen in nearly 40 years as a pediatrician the effect of this confusion on kids in particular. It has changed how and when they eat, how much they sleep, and the degree to which they're drawn to technology. And it's led Lustig to write a new book, The Hacking of the American Mind, in which he writes about his own growing conviction that companies, in trying to sell us some short-term pleasure, have convinced us they're in the happiness business. As I was looking at the phenomena that we associate with obesity, particularly this new phenomenon, which isn't so new, called sugar addiction, and, you know, we can go through, you know, exactly why we can say that that phenomenon is real, Mm -hmm. it was very obvious to me that this is just one manifestation of a multitude of addictions that kids today now manifest, Mm -hmm. including cell phone addiction, Uh, internet addiction, alcohol addiction at earlier and earlier ages. And we actually have the data on that. Uh, Kids uh, alcohol addicted under age 18 Mm -hmm. going up. We have been sacrificing our happiness for the pursuit of pleasure. 
because pleasure got cheap. Hmm. You've kind of talked about three buckets of things, as far as I can tell. You've got food issues, like a sort of addiction to food issues. Um, you've got things like uh, drugs and alcohol, um, substances. And then we've got technology, which is not a substance, it's kind of an experience. What do those things have in common and how are they different in terms of being addictive and how they sort of play in our brains? Right. So the the similarity that ties them all together is that they all generate a dopamine response in the reward center of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. And we have the fMRI and the PET scanning data for each of those to document and demonstrate that indeed all of those are happening. So in human terms, here's what happens. You get a hit, you get a rush, receptors go down. Next time, you need a bigger hit to get the same rush Hmm. because there are fewer receptors. And the receptors go down. And then a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally you get a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons start to die, that's called addiction. Hmm. Every single one of those substances and behaviors that generates a dopamine response has as its end point addiction. And we have an epidemic of all of them. And to you, does like the massive rise in um, obesity, which we've certainly seen over the past several decades, um, and the obviously massive problem that we're dealing with with opioids, but heroin and but meth, I mean, a lot of things. Fentanyl, yep. Right, exactly. And I, I mean, you think about sort of uh, the tech situation as tech addiction. Do those things all like connect in your mind? Does like one thing lead to the other thing or or play into the other thing or make you more likely to have problems with something else? Absolutely. So it turns out those dopamine neurons, they're all the same. So it's not like you have a different set of dopamine neurons for food and a different set of dopamine neurons for tech or a different set of uh-huh. dopamine neurons for heroin. Okay, They're all the same dopamine neurons. And when you downregulate the receptors because you're addicted to one substance, you're addicted to all of them. So it's called addiction transfer. So if you take an animal, a rat, and you expose them to amphetamine for three weeks and then expose them to cocaine, turns out they're addicted to the cocaine too. They've never seen it before, but they're addicted to that too. Mm-hmm. Called addiction transfer. So when people stop smoking, they start drinking. When people stop drinking, they start eating. When they stop eating, they do something else yet again. And usually actually go back to smoking. So the fact, uh, you know, this concept of addiction transfer is well described in the uh, addiction literature. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Robert Lustig, the author of The Hacking of the American Mind, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Brains. He's also an emeritus professor of pediatrics at the University of California at San Francisco. So uh, since the government seems unlikely, at least anytime soon, to heavily regulate companies that, um, you know, as you argue, are trying to conflate happiness and pleasure, uh, whether we're talking about tech or food or alcohol companies, how does an individual person navigate this world in which there's a ton of temptations and make sure uh, that what you're aiming for is happiness and not just momentary hits of pleasure? Number one, connect. And connect does not mean Facebook. (laughs) I was going to say, that sounds a lot like technology. 
No, it's not. It's the opposite of technology. It's real connection. So I want, Facebook is connectivity without connection. Sherry Turkle, media watcher at MIT, right mm-hmm. there in Boston. Yep. You, you're familiar with her. Sure. She's been she, on your show. She has indeed. She coined the term alone together. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are today. We are alone together. We are not a community. We are individuals Okay, with this funky network that basically makes us miserable. That like button on that Facebook post, that is dopamine. It's also depleting serotonin. Now, if you ask Mark Zuckerberg, he'll tell you, well, yes, depressed people use Facebook because they are looking for social validation and this is a potential way of getting it. And that is true. However, if you look at the time lag analysis data, which we have, on anybody who uses Facebook, they are more depressed two weeks later than they were going in, no matter where they started. And we have those data. Um, And I I have them in the book. So Facebook is not connection. It is connectivity, not connection. Human beings are connection. Number two, contribute. And that does not mean to your IRA. Contribute means outside of yourself and not for individual monetary gain or credit. So Boy Scout badges do not count as contribution. So we're talking about volunteerism, altruism, philanthropy. You can pay somebody else to do it for you. Everybody wants to know, can you get contribution and uh, serotonin from work? And the answer is yes, with two provisos, that you can see how your work benefits others and your boss can see it too. If both of those are satisfied, you can actually derive contribution and serotonin from your work. But if not, then you're going to have to engage in something else. Number three, cope. And cope is three specific things, sleep, mindfulness, and exercise. Now, sleep. 35% of American adults get less than seven hours of sleep, and 23% are clinical insomniacs. One of the reasons is the blue light from the video, from your cell phone, Mm -hmm. from your iPad, Mm -hmm. from the TV. Mm -hmm. Um, That is actually keeping your midbrain up. And, of course, kids are, you know, staying up till 2 in the morning texting and chatting uh, online. Okay, Then they have to get up at 6 in the morning for school, and they're all passing out. And, you know, it's one of the reasons for ADD. So the concept of sleep has to, you know, um, as Arianna Huffington said, you know, we have to sleep our way to the top. Right. Um, <laughs> in, indeed. Uh, mindfulness. Perhaps the most pernicious, horrible word in the English language of the 21st century is multitasking. If you can't multitask, you can't get a job nowadays. Well, it turns out only 2.5% of the population can actually multitask. The rest of us are serially unitasking. And every time you switch tasks, you get a cortisol bump, which only activates that dopamine even more so and actually stresses you out, lowers your serotonin, and makes you miserable. So mindfulness. So the concept of basically actively doing nothing, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And number three is exercise. And it turns out that exercise is better than SSRIs at alleviating depression. And then finally, number four, the big one, cook. So it turns out there are three nutrients that matter. 
in terms of happiness and serotonin. They are tryptophan. Tryptophan is the precursor to serotonin, and you get it in eggs, fish, and poultry. Not exactly high in the processed food echelon. Number two, omega-3 fatty acids, because they are anti-inflammatory. And if you look at the brains of omega-3 deficient rats or mice, they have this inflammatory haze around the synaptic boutons where the serotonin is released, preventing its release, and which goes away when you give the omega-3s back. Um, so you get better serotonin neurotransmission when you consume omega-3s, and you get that in wild fish and flax. Again, not exactly high on processed food. Mm -hmm. And number three, you want less fructose, less sugar. Sugar ups your dopamine, downs your serotonin. And so what you want is a high tryptophan, high omega-3, low sugar diet. That's called real food. Hmm. Finally, I just wonder if you can situate the U.S. for me. Um, I know that, you know, I, I think yearly there's a study of what countries are her happiest. We're never among mm -hmm. them usually. I think no, Finland <laughs> is often high. Denmark is very high. Switzerland, Denmark, right. now, uh, Norway. They have yes. sugar. And they have, yes, they, they have Facebook, I think. And um, they have alcohol. And they, and have, they have alcohol all and things. all that stuff. Right. And they right. search on Google and all that. So what do happier countries know that somehow we don't really know or are not kind of attuned to? Um, I'll tell you what they know that we don't. They know that it's not about health care. It's about health. Hmm. That's what they know. We think... A pill can fix it. Turns out there is no medicalized prevention of any of the chronic diseases that we are currently facing. There's treatment, and the farm companies are very happy to treat you for 20, 30 years and make billions and billions of dollars. In fact, they've all abandoned acute care medications for chronic care medications because we're all on them. 50% okay. of people over the age of 40 now take a chronic disease prescription medication. That's not true in other countries. Is there a way, do you think, to incentivize companies to help us be healthier here? Um, I mean, because it seems like mostly companies are doing what's totally logical. They're acting within their own best interest. They're selling us as much of what they have to offer as possible. But maybe there's some sort of a different path uh, that would be more in our best interest uh, than in theirs. Absolutely. The problem is that we would have to change the business model. So currently, companies are rewarded for doing the wrong thing. You have to basically incentivize them to do the right thing. Now, let's take an example. Let's take food. That's an easy one. Mm -hmm. We have this thing called the farm bill. And the farm bill supports the production of commodity crops. And commodities are storable food, fiberless food, food that you can put through a mill, take away the fiber, and put in five-pound bags. So corn, wheat, soy, sugar. Turns out all of those are bad for us. They make money by using commodity crops that are subsidized in order to make processed food, which is killing us. The food industry grosses $657 billion a year. We 
spend $3.2 trillion a year on health care, of which 75% is chronic disease, of which 75% would be preventable if we could turn back the clock to rates of 1970 before processed food entered our world. In other words, we are spending $1.8 trillion a year cleaning up the food industry's mess. We spend triple what they make cleaning up their mess. That is unsustainable. Now, what if instead we actually got rid of subsidies and let the market dictate what different foods should cost? All of a sudden, it wouldn't be a problem for companies to be able to sell fruits and vegetables because they wouldn't be um, uh, bet against because you wouldn't have any commodity crops that you'd have to try to undercut. So the Giannini Foundation at UC Berkeley did this modeling analysis of what would food look like and prices look like if we got rid of all food subsidies. And the answer is, wouldn't change. Only two items would actually go up. Corn and sugar, exactly what we want to go up. Robert Lustig is an emeritus professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also the author of The Hacking of the American Mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains. Robert Lustig, thank you so much. This is great. This has been a true pleasure, Carol. another perspective on how big corporations have changed our diet, we've got an interview with Michael Pollan. I talked with him a few years back. It was a fascinating conversation about the intersection of processed foods, fiber, and gut bacteria. That's on our website, innovationhub.org. When you ask Katie Egan what her favorite class is, she doesn't hesitate. My favorite uh, class I'm taking and my favorite class of all time is math. I think I'm just really good at that and I love it. Katie is in 10th grade. She lives in a small town in upstate New York, which is about halfway between Buffalo and Syracuse. But up until a few months ago, even though she was good at math, the class posed a serious problem for her. And to be fair, so did Spanish and lots of other classes, because getting homework done could be really tricky since Katie had no internet at home. I cannot afford it, along with all of the other bills I have to pay for my house, like electricity, plumbing, stuff like that. I talked to Katie by phone while she was waiting for her mom to pick her up from the library, and she said she often needs the internet to do her school assignments. I've had two projects in math this year where we had to create a slideshow on Google Slides to present to the class and teach them a unit that we had done before. And it was a big chunk of our grade for that uh, quarter of the year. So if I hadn't gone onto the internet, I wouldn't have been able to have a good grade in the class. Do you know if teachers ever are aware that when they say like, oh, you have to do this thing using Google Slides or you have to look this figure up from history, that maybe everybody doesn't have the internet? Um, I think, like, teachers, they just assume that we all have internet access. They don't think that there is a small portion of us who 
aren't as lucky and have little to no money to afford that. Angela Seifer, the executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, says stories like Katie Egan's are not unusual. She hears something similar from families around the country. So they're looking at their bill and they're like, okay, you know, these are the bills that we have for the month. What can we cut? What don't we like? Internet is really important, but look, we just have to feed the kids. And so that gets not doesn't get prioritized. And then the kids come home from school and their homework all requires them to be online. Right. So then the parents are in this situation, and this has happened multiple times, right? We hear the story again and again. The parents are then in a situation where in order for their children to have a successful education, their kids need to have internet at home. Because what ends up happening is when they don't have internet at home, then they're finding public spaces. That is exactly what Katie Egan did. She started camping out at the library every afternoon. It all started, I believe, in... Eighth grade, I started going there. It really started because I had to do a project for a certain class, and so I needed to get on the Internet. So I asked my mom to go to the library, and she said I could, and it just went from there, and I'm, I still come to the library every single day. But libraries close. And while some kids in town are putting the finishing touches on their schoolwork at 10 at night, other kids aren't. Katie says there are lots of people where she lives in upstate New York who've got Internet access, and there are plenty who don't. Here's how she describes the divide in town. There's two sections to it, really. There's the side of the town that is very high-end, very posh and rich and just well-run. And then there's the other side of town that's really run down, and it looks like a disaster. It looks like a twister came through running through the town. In the fall of 2017, Katie Egan got a small box from the library. It was a hot spot that she could take home and it would give her access to the internet. It was free. The library had gotten a grant to cover it. And lots of other kids got the boxes too. Katie says she was surprised at how many people needed them. I asked her how this little box that gives her the internet has changed her life. It's changed completely for the better. It makes it easier to do work at home, so I don't have to go to library all the time, even though I still do because I just love it there. But it makes it easier to do homework anywhere because I can just take the hotspot with me and take it anywhere with my Chromebook and have the internet. Angela Seifer, who runs the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, says that about 60 million Americans, close to one in five of us, are either without steady Internet access or without any Internet access at all, which ends up, she argues, hurting the economy for all Americans. One barrier to access is that families can't afford the bill. Other times, there's just not that much coverage or not that much good coverage where they live. And it takes a toll on the jobs that people can get on the medical advice that they can access, and on their success in school. If you go into a low-income neighborhood after the library closes, after schools close, you'll see kids hanging around outside the buildings. Go to a McDonald's uh, on an evening, a uh, day before school, and you'll see kids doing their homework. And they're using the Wi-Fi network of McDonald's. They're using the Wi-Fi, okay. right. They're using free Wi-Fi wherever they can get it. Uh, I have... Um, 
two teenage children, and I can tell you they don't do homework when they're supposed to do homework. Right. So if you're like, well, children, let's just all make sure we do our homework before 7 p.m. when the library closes. That's just not the reality of how mm-hmm. kids operate, mm-hmm. right? They wait till the last minute, and then here it is, 9 o'clock at night, and they don't have their homework done, and you don't have internet at home. Right. So what ends up happening? The kid doesn't do his homework. It's very heartbreaking. And I'm guessing there's a lot of places where parents do not want to actually let kids out at 9 or 10 at night, where it's dangerous enough. They're worried about what's going to happen. And, like, homework is important, but physical safety is more important. And so they're not going to—they don't want them hanging around McDonald's. Yes, there's a story we heard um, that was told to me of um, a student in high school who was in AP classes, and he lived in the housing authority, and the best place for him to get internet was the Walmart. And his mom said, actually, the Walmart is not a safe place. Stuff goes on in the parking lot that she is not comfortable with. And so she did not want him going there to do his homework. And he would get frustrated with her because he needed to go do his homework, but she wanted him to be safe. When you go around and talk to people, what do, like, ordinary people who are advocating for more Internet access in their area, what do they feel like they're missing? They feel like they're wasting their time. Because if it takes them 30 minutes to do the online banking, and it Uh should have only taken them five minutes to do their online banking, then that's 25 minutes they just lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they have to go in town, uh, you know, or drive two hours to get uh, to a hospital where they could have done um, a video uh, interview with a doctor from their their rural home rather than driving into a a larger city that's hours away. Again, they just lost those hours driving in the car to get there and the gas money and the work time lost. So there's a lot of loss associated with not having the amount of broadband in your home that you really need to be participating successfully today. Right. Have you heard people say that you that they feel like um, it hurts their job prospects, that either they don't get practice or they I, like can't even go on recruiting sites, I would guess? Yeah. No, let me tell you a very sad story. Uh, there's a program in Mississippi where uh, individuals who wanted to change careers or wanted a better job were taught how to use the computer and how to do telework. Right, how to work from home. Mm-hmm. And so someone got a, um, a job offer from uh, a company where she would be doing customer service from her home. It was going to be a huge step for her and her family. And then the company required her to do a speed test, and the job offer was off the table. Mm-hmm. Her home broadband was not fast enough for her to have this telework job. So like her whole family situation would have changed with this new job. And she was so close. Right, right. But she did not have fast enough internet at home. And so the opportunities of other positions were thin. There wasn't a lot of choice out there for her on where she could find a job. Right, and right. she had the training. She was ready. And then it was gone. Right. And that it sounds like the faster um, speed was just not available. Like it wasn't an option she could choose, right? No, she had. In fact, it was AT&T service and it was less than three meg. And they said they couldn't, AT&T couldn't fix okay. that unless she, you know, was able to pay for a very high connection being added, which obviously she's not in a position to do. Can you give me a sense of where in the country you see 
uh, a lot of people, like, where are the hot spots that essentially people don't have internet access? Are there cities? Are there states where a lot of people are concentrated that don't have internet access? Yes. Each year we look at publicly available data and we come up with a list of the worst connected cities in the U.S. And folks really don't like to be on this list. <laughs> but, it, but it does draw attention to it. It is more common for us to hear about rural areas that don't have access, which is a very serious problem, um, and it's expensive to solve. But we as the country have to address that if we want everyone to be online, which we do because that benefits all of us to have everybody else online. There's a misconception that urban areas are just taken care of, that there is more competition in those places. So if we take Cleveland as an example, what has happened in the whole state of Ohio was – About 11 years ago, there was a state law passed that allowed cable providers to have cable franchise agreements throughout the whole state rather than negotiating with individual municipalities. And this seems at the surface like a good idea because it would make it easier, right, less red tape for them to set up their networks. But in reality, what happened is that the the best phrase that we've come up with is digital redlining. Hmm. So they chose the areas that were more profitable, And this happened in Cleveland, Detroit, Toledo. So these are places in Detroit, Michigan. They had the same same law passed there. Uh, These are places where there is access to broadband, but there's not competition because certain AT&T in particular decided not to invest in poorer neighborhoods in those cities. So you can get spectrum charter uh, broadband service, really fast fees but it's going to cost you about $65 a month. Hmm. You can get AT&T, and it would be a bit less. It would be more like 35 to 40 But the speed that you get is going to vary. It might not even be 3 meg because they just didn't invest in your neighborhood. So I'm guessing that means it's very, very slow to download things or to watch videos or whatever. It's about impossible. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Angela Seifert. She's the executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. And we're talking about the digital divide in America. Um, Give me a sense of how we relate to other countries. Because when we talk about 60 million-ish people not having good or reliable internet, that's about one in five Americans, which is strikes me as a lot because, you know, people think, oh, the Internet is ubiquitous. Not if one in five people can't get on it um, in a regular way. How do we compare to, like, France, to Canada, to Australia, to England? Like, how do we compare to other places? Right. So we're, we're mid-range. Okay. Right. But as a country that is used to being at the top in technology and innovation, is mid-range really Okay. Like, are we all are we okay with being mid-range? Uh, there are some that are doing way better than us, and there are some that are not doing as well as us. Uh, so we need to decide if if we are going to continue to be at the top of the game in terms of technology and really lead the world. We need to make sure everyone is participating, because we've already seen plenty of examples of how our technology has failed because we weren't involving people of color, for example, mm-hmm. um, because then it's less usable to folks of color because there weren't people of color creating it. Right, right. Now, here's my question. I feel like, and I may just be imagining this, but that about 50 or 60 percent of the State of the Union addresses I've heard over the last 20 years talked about 
bringing connectivity to people in America who do not have it, like giving them access to the Internet, going out into rural areas and bringing broadband. This seems like a bipartisan issue because we've talked about inner cities, those tend to vote Democratic, rural areas, those tend to vote Republican. So it seems like there's something here for everybody. Why have we not been better um, in addressing this issue? We've gone at it in a very piecemeal kind of way. So some administrations and programs have addressed anchor institutions, for example, libraries and schools, and and those are really essential. Um, Others have gone at rural populations, but it was limited to only certain Internet service providers were eligible for the funds to roll that out. Uh, There was stimulus money that was used also, but that was only for middle mile not to getting to people's homes. So So there's been these little pieces here and there. But we haven't had a national plan where we said this is really important and we're going to really do this. What we've allowed to have happen in the country is that those who have a financial interest in it have been controlling the conversation. And that has got to stop. Hmm. What is your balance of like encouraged versus discouraged in in what you do and the kind of developments that you see on a daily basis? I fluctuate wildly. (laughs) (laughs) There are days when I am super frustrated when I'm hearing these incredibly sad stories of folks who could have had jobs, Mm. uh, of kids who have to go into unsafe places to do their homework. Uh, But then there are we, for example, we just ended our national uh, conference, which we held um, coincidentally in Cleveland, Ohio. And we had uh, over 300 attendees talking about all the creative solutions that they're coming up with to increase connectivity in their communities. And that is really, it's uplifting beyond belief. Angela Seifer is executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Angela, thank you so much for your time. Kara, thanks for having me. I spoke with Seifer and Katie Egan, the high school student that you heard from, back in the spring. And if you're wondering what your home internet speed is like, and they vary a lot, we will have a link to a quick and easy internet speed test that you can do at home. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, engineer Doug Sugertz, and intern Asil Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.